Welcome to episode 15 of Shutters and Shells, where we talk hunting, photography, and the great outdoors. The Shutters and Shells podcast has an amazing, amazing new sponsor, you. Thanks to the supporters like yourself. This podcast is able to release new episodes every two weeks on Fridays, completely ad-free, which keeps us talking about the important stuff. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, visit shuttersandshells.com. Click on the support the podcast button. I put it at the bottom of the page. I didn't want to seem too desperate. I am your host, Dom Gatto. I'm a professional wildlife photographer from New York, as well as an executive producer at Whiskey and Whitetails. The gentlemen at Whiskey and Whitetails are bringing some amazing whiskey barrel products from the Rick House to your home in the form of real whiskey barrel smoking blocks, barrel stave cigar rest, and even photographs from me displayed on a beautiful slab of whiskey wood. Be sure to check out all their stuff as well as their Patreon perks at whiskeyandwhitetails.com. You could use the code GATTO, that's G-A-T-T-O, for 20% off any purchase. I don't receive any affiliate money or kickbacks for that promo code. I'm just a huge supporter of what they do in the hunting community as well as supporting multiple causes for our veterans. So joining me today... On Shutters and Shells, episode number 15 is the senior editor at Black Rifle Coffee Company, senior editor at Free Range America, and an editor-at-large for Field and Stream. No, these are not three separate guests. This is Mr. Michael Shea. Michael, welcome to Shutters and Shells. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on this. I really am because I've seen some... Awesome stories out of you from your articles in Field and Stream and the other places you put out your work. You are a storyteller, man. So the first thing I want to get into here, because I saw you attend a school in New York City. Now, you're originally from the city. No, so not not originally. So I actually I grew up in um, southern New England. Like okay. most of my family is from uh, Rhode Island. Um, and so I grew up kind of in the boonies um, in maybe like three hours, three and a half hours from the city, east of the city. And I ended up going to college and then did a bunch of, had like some wild years, ended up a newspaper reporter and worked kind of all over. And then as like the newspaper world was kind of collapsing, I decided to go to grad school. So then I went to grad school in New York City. Um, and then from there, ended up into the the outdoor magazines and all the stuff I do now. That's pretty cool, man. How, how did you feel moving from, you know, the boonies of New England to, you know, the Big Apple? Like, that's got to be a culture shock. Yeah, I mean, I like I, I graduated high school um, and I two days after graduation, I moved out of my parents house, you know, like I was ready to go and I was on the road like I I went to school. I spent a summer in Rhode Island and I went to school in Rhode Island. Then I went to Colorado and I worked in a national park. Then I got back and I transferred colleges. So I went to Montreal. I spent three years doing my undergraduate degree in Montreal. I got out of that. I worked in a in a psych ward briefly, which is a whole nother story. Like, oh, we got to talk about that. How did you end up working in a psych ward? It was fucking awful. Like, <laughs> um, it was terrible. Like literally my, I didn't know what to do after college and uh, our neighbor, my child, you know, my parents' neighbor um, worked at the psych hospital, was a nurse there. And they just said kind of offhandedly, like, you know, they're hiring. Um, so you could be a mental health worker, which is basically like an orderly, right? Like a guy yeah. in the white and like I, at that time in my life, like about the only thing I ever wanted to be was a writer, you know? And so like, I was really hooked on the beats and Jack Kerouac and, you know, uh, Ken Kesey. And so I thought of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and I had I was this, about to make the I, reference. I was trying to think of a way to work it in, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what I was, that's what I was operating on. Like I, I didn't realize like every, whatever your story is, there's a story there. I thought I had to go out and do radical things you know as a as a young man and yeah. so this opportunity came and of course i thought of that and i was like you know if i want to be a writer i need shit to write about so working in a psych hospital would be part of it um it's definitely an interesting topic people want to hear about it was, it was interesting it was I, I worked the night shift um it was just dark man it was just it was a combined um rehab uh uh and psychiatric acute care psychiatric facility so like we would have 
people like who just OD'd on heroin or alcoholics, like in the same ward with somebody who just tried to kill themselves or was, you know, thought they were Jesus or, or whatever. So you're um, dealing with like all forms of mental crisis. It was, it was the whole spectrum of like mental crisis. Oh yeah. And um, it was just sad, you know, it was just sad. And, uh, you know, there's, it was just, it was just, a, it was just a dark time. I lasted like about a year there. It was the first time I worked a night shift, um, which I'm a morning person, not a night person. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, it was a weird time. So, so anyway, I, I got out of the, I, I left that job and like wanted to go on the road. And so I decided to drive all the way across the country and I landed in like, I landed in Key West um ended up living in key west for about a year and a half i did a bunch of odd jobs i worked as a on a on a charter boat i worked on a, a schooner on a sailing trip i worked in a hotel i did all these kind of odd jobs that was just kind of like a big like drunken blur like pretty much <laughs> lost two years of my life um and then i ended up still trying to write doing the writing thing and then i moved to uh, Georgia to Savannah, just kind of picked it off the map. And there I got my first newspaper job, um, did a package there that did like really well. Like it got a lot of national attention. It's big. What were you uh, writing about down there? So I was a, a county reporter, but at the time, um, this, in this little rural county, uh, this shipping company wanted to build a new cargo container terminal Okay, in South Carolina as like you know, right-leaning, red-blooded estate as South Carolina is, the port system there is all government-run. So, like, if you have all the land and all the money and you're like, hey, I want to build a shipping terminal, like, there's no capitalism there. Like, you cannot do it. It is a state monopoly. And so this particular uh, shipping company had a $500 million check for this county. And they're like, this is yours. If you can get us, if you can fight this screwed up system. So it became this huge legal battle and it set a lot of precedents. And there was a lot of like, uh, irony is the wrong word, but it was like, odd that in like such a free marketplace as the South, like this is how container traffic or, or shipping is conducted. It's a state operated enterprise flies in the face of what a lot of people think about when they think about, you know, though that, that region, that state, that state government. So anyway, that was a big newspaper story. I wrote just kind of out of a bureau, um, did a big investigation into the ports authority, why this is, who are these guys, what are the financial interests there? Um, and it did really well. And then, so that newspaper company ended up, uh, I got, I got, moved promoted to a larger paper in california so i was then moved from to california's central valley i was working for uh the b papers modesto b and that was about the time that craigslist and everything was cannibalizing newspapers the internet kind of jumped in and really took tons of revenue away from the small papers yeah it just tore everything to shreds tore it all up so that meat grinder is happening like i did i did well there but I, it was like, I remember very clearly, like the LA Times laid off like 10% of their newsroom. And I remember looking at that and thinking like all of these like LA Times level journalists are now on the market. And like my goal at that point is like, I wanted to be a writer for like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Like that was kind of what I felt I, where I wanted to go. That's what I was aspiring to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just realized like, no matter how good as I am, as young as I am, like I'm not going to compete with like an old hand from the LA times. So, so it was just kind of like an eye opener. And I said, you know, California wasn't working where I was like, I'm an East coast person or I'm just not a California person. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided to go to graduate school. And then, so I went from California to Columbia. So that's a, that's all like a super long-winded way of saying, like, it's not like I moved out of the sticks and moved into New York city. Like I was kind of on the road every year or two from the time I was like 18 to, I I think it would have been a lot easier to ask you, which States did you not work in? 
Because <laughs> you've, you've been all over the place. That's insane. That's a crazy journey. You start out as like a journalist and you're like, oh, I'm going to work here and I want to go here. And all of a sudden you end up down in Florida. Then you end up in California. Then you end, I mean, you're all over the place. Yeah, I just I bounced around. You know, I was like, I, was, I mean, just perpetually restless, like just as a chasing as a that dream, chasing it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So then you end up in grad school in New York City. And yep. when, when did it click that you wanted to work with the outdoors? I'm hearing that you wanted to be a journalist, but how did the outdoors factor into this? Yeah. So, um, so I grew up, my dad um, was big time into fishing. Mm-hmm. So we did that. We did, um, like, I lived in the boonies, like, we played in the woods. Like, it, we did, it was outdoor living kind of where I was, but there was never any hunting. There was no guns. My parents were not into firearms. Um, so I was a newspaper reporter in California and I went out on uh, an assignment to write about a fishing trip. It was actually my barber shop. I had this, I lived in this little rural town and like for like dudes, like who, if it wasn't a bar, like the hangout was the barber shop. And like Santos is still my buddy. The barber is still my buddy on Facebook. Like I, I love those guys. And so I was just hanging out there. That's like where I go when I'm, you know, between going to assignments, I'd go and sit there, bullshit with them and whatnot. And they did this fishing trip. And so I talked my editor into letting me write a fishing story for the sports page of the newspaper. And we went out to Bodega Bay, North of San Francisco, didn't catch any salmon, but sucked. And there was a guy on the boat who just started like, you know, beating my ass about working for a liberal media and the liberal news and blah, 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 blah. And this was like, back then it was not as polarized the political world as it is right now. Now it feels like fairly commonplace, but like this guy was just like liberal media and Hillary Clinton and just relentless, you know? And like, he didn't, he didn't ask me what my political persuasion was. Nah, was he just, just wanted to stand on a soapbox. Just a fucking loud mouth, you know? Yeah. And so finally he pivoted into like the liberal rag I worked for doesn't even write about hunting season, you know? And that's a shame because deer season is a national holiday and whatnot. And I knew I loved uh, fishing and I always loved the outdoors and I always thought guns were cool and hunting was cool. So I just kind of like in a moment of frustration, I was like, I was like, listen, asshole, like take me fucking hunting and maybe I'll write about it. Like, how do you even get into that? And he was like, well, I'm a hunting education instructor. (laughs) So So he called you on your blog right away. Yeah. So this guy who I really didn't like, I ended up spending like a lot of time with him um, and it came to like him, like, and it worked out, you know, going like, hunting with my best friend. Yeah. yeah it, was, <laughs> it was, it was, a, it was a weird relationship, but, but he was, he was great. He opened me, he got me certified and got me opened up to um, a different kinds of hunting and everything. And um, killed my first duck with him, killed a pheasant with him at a, at a farm in Northern California. And then when I was in my hunter education class, like the moment, like it all changed, I was in hunter ed and there was a councilman for a city nearby, not one I covered, but he knew me because he was in the politics and all that. And, and I, I kind of knew, Oh yeah, you work, you work in that town. Um, and he was like, you know, my son is in this class. And he said, he's like, he's like, I don't know if you guys are writing about this, but my dad's dad had this duck club lease. And the way it works, like duck leases work in California. Like you have an ag field that's like, uh, you know, you have like a ranch land and yeah. they will put in a water control system and flood it. And they'll let 20 guys in and there's like sewer pipes in the ground upturned that. So a guy will take a boat in get in his dry bottom sewer pipe and sit in that pipe all season long. That's like his duck lease. And he has that one, he'll have like three holes, or four holes in this spot. That's the only spot you hunt. And then the ducks come in and you hunt your club that way. So this family had had this spot, like these holes, they call them for like, it was coming up on the fourth generation and he was going to take his son and they were going to, he was going to kill his first duck with his dad and his granddad. And I didn't know much about like hunting tradition. So I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And I was just hungry for a free hunt, frankly. So I was like, yeah, I'll go and I'll write about it. And um, we get out there and it takes some doing, but the kid 
shoots and finally kills his first duck, a mallard. Nice. And like the fam- family dog goes out and gets it. And the dog is like 12, like just fucking ancient, right? Yeah. Just paddling out there, brings the duck back. <laughs> you don't know if the dog's going to make it back. Yeah, you're like, might have to save this dog. <laughs> you know, like, very- <laughs> that story's going to change real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to get worse. Um, but so he brings the, the, the family dog, retrieves the duck, and the kid's granddad's crying, and the dad's wiping away tears, and the kid is choked up. And it was like, wow, like this, like it was powerful. And then in the middle of this, like this bird came just ripping by like a crossing shot about 40 yards. And I just put down the camera and grabbed my gun and sat up and dumped it. Like just stoned it and it just axe over tea kettle piled up and like, didn't even think about it, just reacted. And they brought it in. It was the first canvas back they killed out of that blind and like, a couple of years i'm looking at it right now it's mounted here on my desk nice and i was just hooked man like that like reaction that like not having to think about it that doing it and all of a sudden i had this beautiful thing that i was going to eat and like i had a prize this trophy and it just it changed the whole direction of my life so so then i so I keep doing the newspaper stuff and I start duck hunting like a maniac out there in California. Every, every opportunity I can get duck hunt, I duck hunt, move to um, New York and I'm in this writing program. And like people are writing all these stories about like their childhood or this memoir, or, like trauma or like all this stuff that gets written about in a nonfiction writing workshop. And I'm writing like stories about duck hunters, you know? So I was kind of like the weird kid, I think, kind of off to the side. And uh, a buddy of mine came in and he was looking for interns and he was uh, like, outdoor life is looking for an intern. Uh, you, sh- you should apply. You'd be perfect. Oh, yeah. That's your time to shine right there. Yeah. I wrote them a letter. I was like, and they were in the city. I was like, I'm in the city and I'm a duck hunter and I'm in this great writing program and I'm perfect. And they wrote me a letter and they're like, you're perfect. And so it was literally started what was like a 10 or 12 year relationship with that, um, those brands, you know, field stream and outdoor life. Um, and I've done a bunch of various things over the years. I don't really do much with them now. Things have changed and Black Rifle Coffee's gotten so, um, it's gotten so busy and we're doing such exciting things over there. But I started as a, as a video editor actually for film stream and outdoor life. Then I, I, I turned into an office job. And then, so I left and I was doing freelance video work and writing for them eventually got up to an editor at large, which is sort of like a very fancy way of saying like one of our go-to freelancers. Um, so I did that for FS for a while um, but wasn't, wasn't ever a staffer. I was always like, well, I was a staff video editor, but after those first two years around like 2010, um, I left and just freelance for them. And eventually I had an exclusivity agreement with them. So like everything went to field and stream first, all my trips and stories and ideas and whatnot. Well, that's a um, good agreement to have because you know, it's kind of guaranteed what you're writing is going to get picked up. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. It was great. And like in a lot of ways too, like, um, like the like field stream in particular, like is such a well edited magazine or website, even now, like the two guys there who are like in there, like mixing it up with the sentences are as good as it gets. I mean, they could be editors at like GQ or the New Yorker. So um, there was definitely like a period where I felt like, like I was just glad that I had this relationship with a crew who like was so proficient at, at what they did, you know? So like to have them, even if they tell me like this sucks, start over, you know, like I knew like that, I knew it was, it was valuable to me because they were just so good at what they did. So a lot of like good memories of like working with them and like figuring out like just, you know, how to, how to, how to tell stories really. No, it's cool being working under someone like that. Like you said, they're that good. 
I mean, how much can you learn from someone who's that much ability? And your work shows with it because I'm reading your stories. And one story I recently read was about your uh, your ten years of elk hunting or the uh, the elk hunt curse that you had going oh, on. Yeah. Cursed hunt. I read through that one and I was just captivated. And I want you to dive into that a little bit because that was one of the more interesting elk stories I had. And our last episode on here. Uh, we had a uh, nice talk about an elk hunt, and I, I'm I'm hooked on elk hunts right now. I really am. And hearing your terrible experience with a couple of elk hunts makes me very happy. So, <laughs> especially yeah. uh, how you nearly had to get airlifted out of that one spot. Yeah, yeah. I just I had, I had bad luck, man. I um I think like every hunter has a curse, whether they know it or not. They have some critter or some spot or like a friend or a dog or something that's just doesn't work out for them. Um, and for me, for me, it was elk. Like I just could not connect. Um, and it was always, it was, it's not always stuff out of my control, but it certainly felt like that. Like the first time I went out there, um, my grandfather passed away. So like when I was at, in grad school, my thesis was on World War II and like his war experience. So this wasn't like a distant grandfather. Like this was like, like Grandpa Woods, like, and yeah. I sat down and like, he told me his whole life multiple times into a tape recorder. And he gave me a Japanese sword that he received in a surrendering ceremony at the end of World War II. Like when I turned 18, he was like, this is yours now. And I have this Japanese sword that he brought back from the war. So well, like, that is no small deal. Yeah. Like we were, we were close and he was like a classic, like he was a very, um, like reserved, like very classic, like for the greatest generation. And so it got to a point like, cause I was so, he had, he had a crazy war story. And so I was kind of captivated by it. And I would, I was the one who would ask him questions, you know, like my parents' generation, like the dads came home from the big war and didn't fucking talk about it. No. And like, you didn't ask dad about like, did he lose friends in the war? You know what I mean? Like it just wasn't in it. And then, but as the grandchild, as someone who was a journalist and like knew how to ask people questions for a living or at least practice it every day like i very quickly became the guy i knew all the stories you know so like even now like i had those that like my parents never heard my aunts and uncles never heard so we had this so anyway it's kind of a tangent but like he was very special to me i'm looking at his flag right now it's sitting on my desk near my canvas back and um so i get out there to elk hunt and he he passed away and I had driven from New York. I was in New York at the time um, and just went home, drove back and did the, the whole, uh, you know, the salute and got his flag and we put him in the ground and like it just sucked. Um, and then I went out another year and like, as you referenced it, like I got, I got sicker than hell, man. Um, and like I've broken bones and it has not hurt like this pain in my side hurt. And I was nine miles from anything. Uh, I was alone. I was, I was zipped in my tent the night before season and I just could not like make the pain go away. You know, like I, I, if I got down, like downward dog style, almost like the way a Muslim prays, mm -hmm. I could, I, the pain would go away. It was right in my kidneys. Mm -hmm. Um, so I ended up hiking out, like I blacked out, like I was waking up on the trail. Like it was, it was a, it was a mess. Um, and it turns out it was a, um, it was a kidney stone. And so, um, once they figured that out, they gave me morphine and like, I was well on my way, but, um, it was well, make you feel a lot better. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, so it was, it was, it was touch and go, but like that happened. Then I went back another year with some guy and I was like hunting with a guy and he brought people who I were friends of his, who I didn't know. And, um, like I watched them basically like poach or like kill a herd of elk. They murked fucking six elk. Three oh, guys. God. And, and they, and I wasn't with them. Like I was with my buddy, but we saw the critter, we saw the elk come in and glassed them and then could see them set up all prone, you know, and we were like, what is that? So anyway, it was a disaster. Like the game. Why, why would they, why would they chop down a herd like that? Because they're idiots. 
They're no. just, you know, they didn't even have like, originally they were like, oh, whoopsie, we fucked up. We're only going to take our one. You know, and I was like, it was, it was bad. Like, I mean, I nearly fist fought them when they, they came out and we all met up at the truck. Like I was so furious. Um, I, I, think, I think honestly, like they just couldn't handle like the pressure and they just fell apart. Like one guy, like we got honest at like a couple days later after it all settled with the game wardens and everything. He was like, he was like, honestly, like the gun was recoiling and I thought I missed and I didn't know which one I shot. Um, so oh, I think so they were just firing away pretty much blindly, like a bunch of idiots. Blindly. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Well, they shouldn't I don't, be out there. They they shouldn't be out there. That's not what hunting's about. Especially when you're hunting. I mean, look, hunting's about you're taking down a living creature. You you're killing something. There's no walking away from that, and there's no tiptoeing around the fact that you are killing something. So if you're going to do it, you need to do it in a very dignified and a very respectful manner. You know, and if you're going out there, you don't know what you're doing. If you're ever unsure about a shot, you don't take it. And obviously, they didn't listen to that advice. Yeah, yeah, and I know in hindsight, like since that story come out, I've talked about it, I guess a couple times now. And like, I think they were just dummies. Like, I don't think it was malice on their part. Like they set out to just murder elk. I think it was just incompetence, you know, and they didn't know their, they didn't know their weapons. Um, certainly didn't have good control of them. Couldn't watch impacts and scope, like all like stuff you need to figure out if you're going to become a hunter, they just had made it through life and not, gotten there um, do you think they were just like inexperienced or like what what would it really come down to with them i mean because you could say they're stupid that's it's broad enough to say that they're stupid but was it a matter of them never being on like an elk hunt before yeah i think that's i i don't know i don't know i think that's part of it i think a lot of them were mainly um like yeah 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 i don't think there was a ton of big game experience even though they were older guys they were much older than i was okay. um uh Still just, terrible. Still, yeah, yeah, still, yeah. Still I, terrible. I, it, was just, it was just lack of experience, and I think they just kind of blacked out when they got, um, you know, when the, all of a sudden this thing that it's hard to get on was right in front of them and in their scope. They they just couldn't hold it together, you know. Um, it was a mess. It was a shit show. And like, even like, I didn't even put this in the story, but I got on a bull the last day of that hunt after all the dust settled the game warden like talked to us i didn't get implicated or a ticket or anything because we didn't they were like what happened we were like well go talk to those dumbasses <laughs> uh, you know like, I have a lot of respect for law enforcement and like have zero issue uh you know point you know what i mean like listen the warden's got a tough enough job as it is and he relies on a lot of cooperation out there on the entire hunting community and like the entire hunting community as a whole has the understanding that everyone should be hunting fairly and you know when you have when you're hunting with somebody who is not hunting fairly it is your duty as a hunter not even to say like anyone would call you a snitch or anything like that but it's it's your duty as a hunter to say look this guy did something wrong because he shouldn't be out there yeah yeah and if it was like one of these things like they walked out and were white-faced and like what the fuck we gotta call the game warden like it would have been very different but like the way that it was all handled immediately after the fact like i felt no allegiance <laughs> like you know yeah, i would no, no. i would have taken the stand and pointed away because that it just showed like a kind of character thing there that like i want nothing to do with you know i mean honestly if you mess something up like that and you were to walk out of the woods and call the game warden and be like hey look we want to report ourselves we messed up here's what happened it would probably be cleared up without an issue because yeah. it's not the first time like, a warden would come out and be like, all right, you guys are idiots. You're hunting. Here's what's going to happen. You got to report this. You'll probably be fine. And that'll be the end of it. But once you start trying to cover it up and you start trying to, you know, play that game where you're trying to cover your tracks, uh, it's not going to work out for you. These guys are actually really, really good at finding yeah. people when they screw up. Yeah, yeah. That's their skill. Like, that's what they do. It's you their know? job. It's their that's complete job description. It's like job. they have one job. Yeah, one job. They're probably good at it if they've been in it a long time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Any story you're telling them they've heard about a dozen times in the last six months, it's like they, they already know. Yeah, exactly. And getting lied to all day long, like their bullshit detector is honed, you know? Like, anyway, it was a, it was a shit show. And that was uh, the 
the third time I went out and uh, chased elk. Um, I went out a, to- a different time with another guy as well. It just, it just never came together. You know, it was always something like that, you know, deaths in the family, getting sick, like bonehead company, like it just never worked out. And uh, I decided this year to go give it a shot again. I got my buddy who's a wicked photographer, um, kind of talked me into it at attack. And he wanted to go. He'd not, he hadn't elk on it or mountain on it. Um, he was like, come on, man, let's go. We, we got to do this thing. Let's, let's seal the deal. And uh, another friend of ours um, joined up kind of last minute. And he's actually a very good elk hunter, very accomplished. He was super helpful to have out there. And um, yeah, and it all, it all came together this year. I ended up uh, arrowing a cow, which wasn't really my plan. Like it was kind of like I was going in for bulls only. Um, but we had so little action and there were so many hunters and like, you know, we were out there so many days and this was about the only critter we had, you know, broadside. And so I just decided, you know, like it's time to, it's time to seal the deal here and and break the curse, if you will. And it worked out. Well, I'm glad you broke the curse because you definitely had some cursed hunts. You had, you know, a loss, terrible loss in your family. You had kidney stones. You had a bunch of running gun idiots. You had a couple of skunk hunts, and then you finally knocked one down. I mean, you put in the time. I think you deserve to get that broadside cow. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. It was, uh, it was cool. It was, it was awesome to have it like, you know, kind of underline that one. It's like, all right, this is got got the elk. You know, what's yeah, that? And I, and I urge everybody to look up Michael's story on this cursed elk hunt. If you just Google Michael Shea elk hunt, it'll come up. It's like the first result. And it's it has incredible, incredible details into every little thing that happened through all of your elk hunts. I was, I felt like I was there. You're, it, it really did. It just brought me into the world of dread and despair that was your, your elk hunt spree. <laughs> Yeah, it seems to follow me. I'm like, I'm, I'm good at the, I got the dread thing figured out. Yeah. And speaking of dread and despair, there's one more article I read from you. And I'm sorry that I'm picking the, the bad articles here, but they are by far the most captivating because everyone hears a million different stories about like the successful humps. You know, we went out in the morning, sat in my stand, this big buck walked out, knocked it down. It's like, okay, beginning, middle, end, wonderful. That's you know, it's, it's, everyone hears it, but the one story I really loved from you was about your Florida buck hunt in the swamps. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, my it, God. Yeah. I can't was, imagine. That was like, uh, the, 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 the most fun thing I'll never do again. <laughs> like, yeah, that was, yeah. So, so for, for, for people not tracking here, um, Florida has a South Florida, whitetail season that opens in july i think at least for the year i was there the opening day was july 31 so think about like inland from like palm beach like everglades uh what that feels like down there in the first oh. week of august and you're in a tree stand and the the deer down there and this is the only time i i hunted them so a lot of this comes from the guys we were with who do it year in and year out. But um, like everything in Florida wants to kill and eat deer, you know, like they have, uh, they have, they have hunting pressure, of course, but then they have cougars and they have alligators and they have pythons in the Everglades and they have bears and they have poisonous critters. And like the, the, the deer just wired to avoid predation. It's basically uh, the Australia of America. Yeah, that's exactly that's a great way to put it. It's exactly what it is. And these things are are predated day and night. And so like we watched um when we got there, it had been raining and like it rained the first day and we couldn't go out. And then it finally cleared up. And it's flat as a pancake down there. There was a couple little bumps like where someone had tried to make like ag fields on this big lease we were on. But pretty much everything except the field I hunted had like three or four inches of sheet water on it. Like literally like step out of your, of the cabin of the trailer we were in. And like you're, you need muck boots on because the boots, the water's up to your ankles. Like it was the, it was like water world, you know? And um, 
<laughs> mosquitoes. Like dry like, land is not a myth. I have seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was like water world and like and just mosquitoes everywhere. And um like I I forgot my thermocell one morning. So like I I ended up killing a great deer down there um for Florida. It was like 105 inch. It's probably a six year old deer. They just don't get big down there. No, that's big for Florida. Gnarly chocolate horns. Um, and like I drew the, I drew, they, they had a couple of them patterned and we drew straws to see like who gets to sit on the best stand on the first night. And I drew the straw and I killed the deer. And it was literally like that. It was like this deer's coming in every night. Who's going to get it? I won the lucky straw. I got in the stand. They're like, it walked by about four o'clock. Like oh, you, be, you better not miss. 402, that thing was broadside. You uh, know? Yeah. That, that, if you drew the straw, you better, you better make a good shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure yeah. on you. And uh, so, yeah. So that happened the first night. And then after that, it was just the wheels came off the car. You know, <laughs> like we were, <laughs> we were driving without wheels because. It started raining again. The bugs were bad. Nobody saw another deer. Um, they had like four or five cats show up on camera that week. So once like the the, the pumas or what do they call them down there? Panthers, mountain lions. They're all the same thing. Once the mountain lions moved into the to the piece, like the deer were gone. Um, now, what's the rule with predator hunting down there? Oh, the cats are very much protected. I think okay. they're on the endangered species list in Florida. It's a, it's like a subpopulation of cougars. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So they are very, very protected. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just weird. Like Florida's a weird place. I spent spent a lot of I spent a week hunting turkeys down there. Um, DIY. You like, knocked down any osceolas? Did not. Nope. Ah, but, that's um, a shame it's hard it's hard to hunt man and like it's just it's just odd the the the, the caginess of everything because turkeys down there like the deer just everything eats them um they're survivors so, yeah they're survivors you know like turkeys up here like i hunt turkeys all over the place and you know in the morning comes they fly down and get them strutting in a field and whatnot like Osceola's avoid though. They don't go into the fields, you know, they don't go into, you know, you're almost like hunting them in the shadows. Like you gotta be in like the thick stuff, almost like the way you'd hunt grouse. You know, the turkeys are walking through there. Like they don't, they don't come to clearings. Um, and same thing with the deer, like the deer um, sort of hugged cover, except for why I think this buck was in that field I was in. Like there was some dry ground and it was like a hump. And that deer could sit in the, the, and I saw does do this later in the week. They would get to that high ground and just bed right in the middle in the wide open in the field. Oh, and just see everything. On a swivel, just going, looking at everything. Yeah, they, um, they could see everything coming for, you know, a couple hundred feet away. It's probably the safest spot. Yeah. But think about that. Think about like, when's the last time you saw a whitetail, like in the middle of the day in a bare dirt field? Just no. sitting there looking around, you know, like no, it's the, just the only down. day, yeah, the only day whitetail I see are all, you know, in thick woods. That's why when I want to go out during the day, I'm always in like a thick timber area because I know it's where they're going to be. I don't see them in the fields during the day, very yeah. rare, very rarely. They're in, they're in like some thick ass bedding area, you yeah. know, whereas down there it was like the scalped kind of bean field is where they were hanging out, so. You know, I always yeah, tell people that too when they ask uh, about like, you know, where do you find the deer? Like during the day, how do you get in these pictures in the woods? I go, well, I walk into the woods, find like a deer track or something, follow it. And then when you can't follow it anymore and it is too thick for you to move through, that's where they are. Yeah. <laughs> They're always in like the thickest, thorniest, just most disgusting deep down places in the woods to bed down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but I can't imagine hunting in Florida because when I think deer hunting, I always think, I mean, because most of my deer hunting has been done in New York, Pennsylvania, Kansas, Nebraska. I think, you know, cool autumn days, nice breeze, you know, maybe a jacket, maybe not. Or later in the winter, we were all layered up and you're nice and toasty waiting for the deer to come out. And I never think heat. I don't know if I could do it with the humidity and the heat. I think I'd lose my mind with the bugs. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. I, uh, I went out one morning, they had this feeder deep in there that the hogs were in. So I had tagged out and was going to shoot pigs and I got out there and, um, I forgot my thermocell, which is That's like a bad feeling. Oh man. It was awful. Um, it That's actually, like your one I, saving grace I down there. I, I think I screwed that up. This was a couple of years ago. I'd have to look at the story. I think it's in the story. I think the thermocell got wet. I think is what it was. I think I had it and it couldn't light. Anyway, I didn't have a working thermocell. So the the hog trap where it was, the hogs were in there. They just they just kind of shit. They go to the bathroom all over the place and all that crap from the hogs feeding near the trap attract more bugs. And so that sun came up and I mean, it was unmanageable. And I texted my buddy and I was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta pick me up. I was on like the far corner of this several thousand acre piece. And, um, he's like, yeah, we'll come get you. And I was at like sun up. So like seven 30 in the morning and it wasn't like 1130 until I got out there. Oh, uh, so um, you were destroyed. you were just bit up all over. Destroyed. I ended up deci- I decided I was like, I'm going to walk back. And it was like miles through sheet water you know, and, uh, I just started walking because I couldn't sit still, you know, like if I was still, I had more bugs on me. And so I was like full clothes, pulled up face mask, hands in sleeves, balled up hat down low in my eyes, face mask up, hood up, like everything I could do to cover my skin to get the mosquitoes off. And it was still like chewed through. And there's a photo, I think it's probably on my phone. I gotta, I'd have to look it up or shirts on my computer where someone took a picture of my back because the mosquitoes could bite through the shirt on my, where it was tight on my back. And I mean, I look like it's, it's like leprosy, like the amount of bumps on it, like just <laughs> can't see the white of skin. It just, it looks like a topo map of like texture. That is my bitten up back. How long were you itching for up to that? Oh my God. I don't even, I don't even remember. I came home. Like I didn't want to go outside, you know, like just, <laughs> I don't want to go hunting cop. anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't care where I am. I'm not, I'm staying inside. It was bad. It was bad. And the reason they were so late to pick me up is because of all that water. They trashed all the machines. Like we broke, I don't know, like at least two four wheelers, a huge jacked up Polaris broke down. Like we were basically running people around there on two big tractors because every side-by-side four-wheeler ATV we had uh, just like broke in those like water world conditions. God, that bad. is insane. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I could not imagine doing a hunt like that. As much as I really do want to knock down an Osceola and kind of get my slam, I, I, I don't know if I have what it takes to deal with that kind of condition. Cause I'll sit out there in the freezing cold all day. I'll sit out there from sunrise to sunset in the fall. But the more I think the one thing I can't take is I went out this summer and I got some great, great photographs of some uh, bucks in velvet. And it was the first time I really went out looking for velvet bucks and just the bugs alone were just eating me alive. I'm like, this is, this is brutal here. I can only imagine now how brutal it will be in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Now April is a little better. April's April was much better as far as bugs and the conditions, um, as far as hunting Turkey season. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, it, it's definitely was hot, but I, I, I'd go back for us. I will go back for Osceola's, um, but you get into that July, August, like sitting still in a tree stand, like they can have that. I, I crossed that <laughs> off my list. You already got one. You're done. You did it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I don't want to do that hunt again. So now that we've talked about quite possibly your worst hunting experiences, I wanted to bring drag you through the mud once again with that. Uh, what would you say is in your career now, being your quote unquote hunting journalist? Let's call you that. What is probably your favorite story of a hunt? What was your best hunt you ever had? Oh. Man, that's a hard one. I, I ask a lot of people that, and they always say it's a hard one because there's so many good hunting stories. But if you had to pick one, what would it be? Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, I think there's like, I, I, I love hunting like bow hunting whitetails, you know, and. Um, 
when I, I think of like two sort of early experiences um, and it's not even like big trophies, but just like when I think how to hunt whitetails kind of clicked in my head um, was pretty powerful. So I always kind of think about that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like I killed, I killed a giant bear in Idaho this year with some buddies. Beautiful. Um, like uh, uh, I've killed some good deer like lots of ducks, like I got elk checked off. Like I've definitely done some stuff, but, um, but like when I think about like moments, you know, like there's a, there's a funnel behind my parents' house, like where I grew up and there's a cornfield on the other side of it. And there's always deer traffic in there. When I was first learning to bow hunt, I was like, Oh, this, I got this, you know? So I go set up in the funnel and I would get winded. And like every time the deer, no matter what direction deer were coming or the wind was coming, like I could not make it work. And then I realized someone clued me in. I don't even know how I arrived at it, but that I had to be way closer to the field and way high in the tree. So the thermals in that warming field would not, would suck my scent kind of out of the funnel. And once I put that all together and I got in that stand where it, where it was forever, um, that spot, like all of a sudden it was a different story and I was invisible. And so like that moment, like when I figured out like the mouse trap and all of a sudden the spot that I was getting crucified in for seasons, all of a sudden there's 15 deer walking under me, like on a train track and an app bow shot. And like, I just, there was just like that moment. I was like, this is, this is what I needed to do. I got them. I got all of them. I didn't even need to shoot them. I was like, I figured it out. And I've killed, I killed bucks back in there and white and does and, you know, everything that was really productive for a long time. I don't really hunt it anymore because I'm not on the club that has that ground, but, um, uh, like that moment, you know, and like, likewise, like we, we live in upstate New York, you know, in the Finger Lakes. Mm-hmm. when we bought this property um we were walking through the woods and i was like i'm gonna hang a stand here because there's this hawthorn they're eating i can get in this hemlock this is the hemlock stop and then it's hawthorn and then it's brush over there i'm like you know what i mean like i was excited because i was like i can't believe i can afford this place and i can yeah. deer on my own land and like all of these things were going on i was like if this works and we buy this place i'm gonna put a stand here and then the first stand I put in here was in that one, in that exact tree I saw before we even owned the property. And the first sit in that stand, I arrowed a doe at like, nice. and so like, those are the ones that like, I remember because it was like the, it, it, it's like confirmation. It's like the joy of a plan coming together. Yeah. 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 That's exactly what it is. That's a great way. You built it all yourself. You put out the plan. You were like, I know what I'm doing. I have this experience. I've gone down this road a million times and now all this knowledge and time I put in there is finally going to come to, to pass. And then it does. That's a really, really good payoff. Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the thing that most, um, most excites me, you know, like, um, like I killed a, I killed a great one, uh, last year at a farm. I actually got in it with another hunter on the farm and I can't, I'm not hunting there anymore. I got, I got booted by the farmer because I told this friend, he's a jackass. Cause he was trying to, he drove a, <laughs> he drove a quad like opening morning of Turkey season. And I have birds in my decoys and my five-year-old is in the blind with me. And this bonehead like drives his quad through the field. The birds are in to set up. And I was just like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you can't hunt here. Anyway, it was a disaster. But um, I had something similar happen to me in uh, in Kansas once. Oh, my God. We, we were hunting uh, public land, right? And it was uh, butt up against this farmer's field. And, you know, we knocked on the guy's door and we're like, hey, man, we're going out and we're uh, hunting the public land back here. Is there anything that you're hunting? We don't want to break your spots by your land. We're trying to do the right thing. We were from out of town, you know? And he was a... Uh, Pretty cool about everything. He was just like, yeah, no problem. Uh, no, no, I'm hunting this other field on my property. You guys are good. I don't think anyone else is out there. Just have fun. I'm like, okay. The Probably like two mornings later, we're sitting out there in a blind. And, uh, you know, we're hearing some gobbles in the tree line behind us. And this guy comes out on a four-wheeler, like down 
the road and then turns and crosses the f- field <laughs> in a four-wheeler. And we didn't hear a gobble the rest of the day. We're like, what was this guy's problem? And so we would knock on his door probably uh, the next morning. And we're like, hey, man, we were out there uh, hunting. Everything good? And he's like, you know, I went out here, and I think you guys are pushing the birds away from my land. <laughs> like he could have just told us that in the first place. So we would waste three year- days here, man. Yeah. Yeah, he was kind of a he was a backwoods boy and he wasn't really happy yeah yeah there's just so many boneheads out there but but so like that that farm it's kind of like a community farm where a lot of guys hunted it and i killed my biggest white tail um not just with a bow like ever like it's a it's a it's a good buck there last year and that was awesome because it put it together but like even that like i wouldn't trade that for the doe right on my own property because like the way that one went down is i knew there were good deer in there and i knew other hunters were the problem and i hunted it for four years and once i finally complained to the farmer and he was like all right all right i'll keep guys out of this ravine then all of a sudden i immediately the next year kill the slammer right so like that's cool the plan comes together but it doesn't have the same like power to me as like figuring out a spot on my land like the excitement of of getting rid of dumbasses out of the woods so i can hunt it's not the same thing as like figuring out bedding food and like not having not being infringed upon by people you know so like i have a lot of stories like that figuring things out spots that don't have like great deer but have you know i'm able to kind of do my own thing and fill the freezer and uh yeah and i just i i love those i wouldn't trade those moments for the the big ones which i think is probably why i was like so easy to kill a cow like i was like oh like this is how this week is going like yeah we got to change expectations here and just you know if i see a cow i'm sending it yeah i mean i don't blame you at all for doing that because I mean, if that's the kind of hunt you're having and you can go either way, I had a, last year I knocked down a doe and uh, I had a doe tag and I had a buck tag and I told myself, I'm not going to knock down a doe, I'm going to knock down a buck, but I have a doe tag, it's on our land, it's not a big deal. So I'm set up there in the stand and it's like the last day of the season and we're just, I'm, I'm just waiting and waiting and I see like five or six doe come out into the field. And they start crossing over this little four-wheeler track that goes on, on the edge of the field. And like one, two, three, four, five goes. And the sixth one walks out. And she is like double the size of all of those doe. And I'm like, yeah, you're dead. <laughs> like, that's yeah. a horse. You're going down. She ended up field dressing at 180 pounds. So, wow. yeah, just a monster New York doe. And um, it, it's it doesn't matter if you're killing a, a buck or a bull or if you're killing a doe. It's... I mean, you're out there to hunt. You're you're eating what you're taking. You're you're harvesting ethically, so it, there's no shame in it. I don't know why guys try to shame people for their harvest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I'm I'm definitely like a you know a quote unquote trophy hunter. Like, I want to get big mature animals out, and I feel like it prolongs my season. Like, I'm able to stay at it longer because it's harder to kill those critters. So, so will, will you pass more often than not on things? Oh, bucks. I definitely do. Like yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. I won't. Um, I'm picky about the, the, the age class of the, of, of, you know, a, a, a buck or a bull, like, or theoretically a bull, but not a lot um, of people in New York agree with that. <laughs> yeah. It's awful. It's awful. Oh, like they, the best they, thing that ever happened in Pennsylvania was those point restrictions. And I think those boys will admit that now, even though they wanted to, you know, there was the guy who, put those in place, whatever it was 20 years ago was wearing bulletproof vests and getting death threats and whatnot. But that whole culture in Pennsylvania changed and it's a great deer state now. And yeah, I'm not opposed to like sending arrows, like the doe tag system, like particularly in New York, like outside of a couple like weird zones, like that weird thing they did around Rochester where you had to kill a doe to get a buck tag. Like they haven't been perfect, but more generally speaking, they have it pretty figured out here. And shoot does man you know like and i understand if you have one spot you don't want to burn it but the answer there is get more than one spot so like i'll put cameras out get a figure figure out like what's around or i'll hunt a spot for a couple days and figure out what's around and like if there isn't a three and a half year old or better deer in there like and i can shoot a doe punch a doe tag you know and like this is something that like I've written about, like I've talked about a lot. And it sounds like 
brutal to say it, but I think especially bow hunters, like you have to get reps on killing. You have to get reps on like sending arrows at animals. And like, I get it. Like you run 10 miles and you do a CrossFit routine and you're exhausted and you shoot your bow and like, that shit's all great. Like get in shape, do it like more power to you. But I know so many guys, I had this when I, I had a target panic episode in my own life where you, you, you can do all that stuff and like campaigns your whole life, but the gears can still get ground when you come to draw on the buck of a lifetime or a bow oh, yeah. on a lifetime. And you need to have that mechanics of like seeing animals in the peep site, picking the right spot on the animal and following through with your shot. And so like bow hunters need reps of sending arrows, you know, and like I got guys at work and they're like, Oh, I'm going to really want to shoot a buck this year. And I'm telling them like, dude, you've sent like one arrow at one animal ever. Like you need to shoot every legal critter that walks under you. Like that's how you get to be a better bow hunter, you know? Um, and, and like, and I say that and it does sound brutal and it sounds like all of this, but the truth is like all those animals are getting eaten, you know, nothing is going to waste. It's just saying like, you know, especially early in a bow career, or if you have any kind of target panic issues, like sending as many arrows as you can and getting those experiences of was it a good shot, how to run a blood trail, how to like figure out how to cut up animals yourself rather than just take them to the processor. Like that is all very valuable towards building like a, a total picture of, uh, of a hunter. You know, rather than like a guy who just sits in a tree and like once every four years kills a great deer, you know? No, I completely get what you're saying. And it's true. You need to have that experience. And I, I think a big thing with it too, and it could just be me thinking this way, but I think social media plays into it a lot too now with the new generation of bow hunters that, and look, I'm not a huge bow hunter. I hunt rifle mainly. I have bow hunted, but it's not my forte. And for reasons being that are probably reasons you just described. I haven't sent a lot of arrows. And when I'm not comfortable in taking a shot, I'm not going to take it. And with a bow, I'm not 100% comfortable as I am with a rifle. I know with a rifle in my hands, whatever I'm aiming at, it's going to die. But I know that with a bow in my hands, I'm not as confident as I could be. So I'd rather not go for bow season all the time. Because I don't, I don't want to wound an animal and lose it. I don't want to make those mistakes. And maybe I should make those mistakes because they would probably make me a better bow hunter. But now when you come down to things with social media, I, I think it's a, a big thing with the culture now that people are you know more interested in showing the world the big buck they killed than if they sh knock down a doe with a bow. They're going to be like, well, no one cares about this. And meanwhile, you should care about it. It's your it's your kill. It's It's your hunt. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it, but I mean that's the world we live in today. Everyone else is trying to front to everyone else how uh, how great they are, you know. And if they can't do that, they feel like it's a waste. Yeah, yeah. Um, Shane Mahoney, the great kind of conservation writer and speaker, I heard him. Uh, I think it was at a shot show a couple of years ago, and he was talking about how the emphasis in kind of hunting media particularly on the social media has switched from like, look at this magnificent animal to look at what I did, you know? And I think, yeah. I think that's really a smart way to think about it. Um, you know, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, look at what I did, look at, look at, you know, this great thing that I accomplished and in the hunting world, a lot of that is inches and antlers and, and whatnot. Um, it's not everybody. I think like, um, and I think like we're starting to see now, like through a lot of, a lot of these like shit posting accounts, they call them, like, I think hunters are really starting to hold themselves accountable, you know, and there are people out there like show, like really just talking about doing it for the food value of it, which is great. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's problematic, you know, like how, um, uh, uh, how, how hunters kind of can pitch themselves sometimes like on, on social media, you know? Um, but generally speaking, like, I think, I think in, in, in a lot of cases, the intentions are good. Like we're just trying to, 
to figure it out. Like a lot of the hunters are trying to figure it out as they go. It's like, why? Like, if you look at my feed, like I'm always writing way more than like I'm a lot recently, like a lot of my Instagram posts, like the story is like, I'm needing to go into the captions because I'm hitting the character count. And I think a lot of that is just like wanting to explain the backstory and the context of this like photo of me with a dead animal because I think we've like desensitized a little bit and like, there's a lot that people just read into those photos that, um, you know, may not be there, but, um, you know, perception is reality, you know, and it's, it's a naughty subject, you know, it's a, it's a naughty subject for sure. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think some people are just looking for clout in all the wrong places. And I got to yeah. say, with that all being said, we're hitting that one hour mark here and I am on a schedule with a six month old baby at home. So I got to start wrapping up. But before I do that with you, I want to give you an opportunity to go ahead and shout out your Instagram, your website, any kind of plugs or links or promotions, whatever you're doing, feel free to shout out now for all the listeners. Time is yours. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, at Michael Arche. Easiest way to find me. Easy. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. Short, sweet, simple. At Michael R. Shea. Everyone look this guy up. Read his stories. Just Google Michael Shea, Field and Stream. You're going to see some uh, some really impressive articles. If you got a minute to read through them, it, is, it brings you into the world. And uh, with that, I want to thank you all for joining myself and Michael Shea for episode 15 of Shutters and Shells. You can listen to Shutters and Shells on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and about a dozen other streaming platforms pretty much anyone that can play it i throw it out there for them to play us very happy so many people take us on board uh all you have to do is say hey siri play shutters and shells or visit shuttersandshells.com as always drink your milk wear your seatbelts, and enjoy the great outdoors michael thank you very much for joining me today thank you